Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope, and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. Buenos dias. I, I can't remember any of the other languages, otherwise I'd throw them out. Uh, so here's what we got going this morning. We, we have a huge privilege. We have a huge privilege. Um, Kai, from my daughter's kindergarten class, is here. So Kai's here. Kai, glad you can make it, dude. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, there's... So I called my friend... Well, you guys know Buzzy. Buzzy, one of my good buddies. And so we were talking, and he said, man, you've got to get my friend, my professor. He's, he's kind of a mentor in my life to come and teach. He's amazing. And I'm like, well, then why would he want to come and teach? He goes, because he has that kind of a heart. Like, he wants to, to support pastors and churches, and he's a pastor of pastors. In fact, that's what he does. He's a teacher at a local seminary, and he teaches pastors. And so I asked him to come and share, and we're going through the book of Acts. We're going through the AD series that's on NBC, and we're actually going through the Bible as they're going through it with their interpretation, and we're going to go through the Word as well. And um, I'm so excited what he's going to teach. And so he's prepped us with a responsive reading. And we've done a few of these before. It's not something that we typically do. But what we do is, is I'm going to read one part, and I'm the leader or the L, and you're the P. Said that for Kai. You're the P, the people, and so I'll read my part and you'll read yours. But we're going through Exodus 20, and that is, in case you didn't already know, um, the Ten Commandments. And so it's to prep our hearts and to put us in the right direction. So if you could join me by standing. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who freed you from the land of Egypt where you were slaves. You must not worship any other gods except me. You must not make any idols, worship, or serve idols of any kind, because I, the Lord, am your God. You must not use the name of the Lord your God in vain, making empty promises. You must remember to keep the Sabbath a special, holy day. You may work six days a week, but the seventh day is a day of rest in honor of the Lord your God. You must honor and respect your father and your mother. Do this so that you will have a full life the Lord your God gives you. You must not murder anyone. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal anything. You must not tell lies about other people. You must not desire to take your neighbor's house. You must not desire their spouse. And you must not desire their possessions. You must not seek to take anything that belongs to another person. 
Behold the word of the Lord. Now, typically what happens with these is we respond the same way. It's kind of funny when I say, well, I read that first part, you must not desire, and this is how you respond. We are overjoyed at the Lord. (laughs) The rest of those responses, we're going to, Dr. Gary Black's going to take us deep into those scriptures, but listen. And if you don't believe it, then say, Lord, why don't I believe this? Why don't I, why do I not have this joy? Why am I struggling with coveting my neighbors, whatever? So I want to pray for us and then invite um, Dr. Black up. Father, as Greg said last week, we believe. Help our unbelief. And we want to present ourselves before you the best that we know how. Our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. Guide us. Form us. Change us. Speak to us. Convict us if need be and give us the strength to change our mind and redirect our lives to match your word. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, please be seated and please welcome up Dr. Black. Yeah, no Dr. Black stuff, okay? It's just scary. Just scary. I, I, I still look around like Dr. What? What is that? I don't know what that is. So, um, Boogie... So I'm still trying to, I did, when I, you know, when you get email, you don't know exactly how to pronounce things. I didn't know if it was boogie or boogie, like boogie, boogie board or bogey. So it's boogie, I'm still remembering. So boogie and buzzy, um, that's like the new names for pastors now. And so my daughter like uh, said to me, dad, you need a nickname if, you know, boogie and buzzy. And I'm like, like, what would you recommend? She goes like, how about loopy? I'm like, no, that sounds like a dwarf. I don't want to be a, a dwarf, so I think I need a, I think I need a, a nickname. Um, it's great to be with you. So I read outside that this is the church for people who don't like church. Is that? Oh, don't go to church. Okay. Well, that's a little bit different. Okay, well, I'm a little bit, I'm good. So you kind of like to be here. That's, that's good, because that takes a little bit of the pressure off. Um, <laughs> So I, I don't, it's not that I have to make you like it, I just have to, but you're here. So anyway, I'll figure that out. I just can't be churchy. Can't be churchy. Okay, all right. I'll try not to do that. Um, this is actually, a, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's meaningful to me and my wife when we walked in. And, um, and we kind of just get the vibe of what you've got going on here. This is a special place. This is a sweet place. Uh, You've got a sweet spirit environment about you here. Um, And and I like the idea about having a place for people that, um, for whatever reason, have not gotten what they wanted to get or hoped that they would get in other kinds of church environments. Uh, That's really been what I focused on quite a bit in my research is this thing called post-evangelicalism which is a big word for what you're doing right now. So I feel like I've kind of jumped into a pool that I've been thinking about and hoping would come true. And, uh, and I walked into the door of a place that uh, has been in my imagination for quite a while. So I'm kind of excited about what you've got going on here. So. So. You're awake now. So we're in this time 
between Easter and Pentecost. So one of the things that that sometimes we forget about, especially being in America, um, and, and our understanding of American versions of Christianity really for the last 250 years, is that there's a 2,000-year-old story, a 2,000-year-old tapestry that is being woven that we get to play a part in, that we're coming in kind of really at the tail end of this 250-year story. There's, there's a 2,000-year story that comes before us. And there's this thing that the churches throughout the world the Christian church throughout the world has been involved in, and it's called the liturgical calendar. And the liturgical calendar is something that was started right about 200 years after the birth of Christ and has been going on and is going on right now in places all over the world where people are meeting, just like you and me, to celebrate the reality of the kingdom of God and Christ as king. And this week in the liturgical calendar, is the second week of what's called Eastertide. Eastertide. So it's the two weeks after Easter. Well, Eastertide is the 50 days between Easter and the Sunday of Pentecost. And really, what you're watching, if you're watching the, um, the AD series, is the story of Acts. And Eastertide is in that, those first few chapters. Of, of Acts. And there's a lot of really important things that happen in the scriptures during this time. And one of the big ones, of course, is the ascension of Jesus, right? But there's some other events that occur in there as well, such as the discussion that Jesus has with the two men on the road to Emmaus. If you haven't read that story, take some time maybe this week to look at that. It's called the road to Emmaus event. And then there's, of course, the conversations that Jesus has with Thomas. Remember, he gets this kind of bad name, Doubting Thomas. Actually, he's, I like to think of Thomas more as a prove-it-to-me Thomas. Which is, I think, exactly what Jesus wants to do. He wants to prove it to us. And then there's that great, you know, fish taco event um, that Jesus has with the, uh, I knew you'd like that down in Southern, uh, down, you're not in Southern California, you're south of me, but, you know, fish tacos on the, on the uh, Galilean coast that Jesus makes for the disciples with Peter. And he has that great conversation with Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's like, can you? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. That's another great story that is worth paying attention to. But since I was not raised in a Christian tradition that used the liturgical calendar, it wasn't until I got much older that I learned what Eastertide is all about. And if you're relatively new to Christianity too, Eastertide goes along with Lent, right? It goes along with Lent. It, it comes right after Lent. And Easter is the, the end of Lent. So Lent is the 40 days prior to Easter. And traditionally, you know, Lent is something that we think about regarding giving things up. Right? We usually make a decision that we're going to not eat dessert. Or we're going to, maybe if you're not, I was going to say if you're not so bright, you're going to give up coffee or something. But we, we which I would never recommend doing. Um, maybe some other things, but not that. Because 
there's going to be coffee in heaven, and I don't know why you would want to give it up now. <laughs> so, so Lent, we usually talk about giving things up, and, and that's important. Sometimes we give up big things for Lent. Sometimes we give up little, little things. One of the things that I learned later on in life is that um, Sundays during the Lent period, now this is really important. You need to write this down for next year, okay, because you're going to be happy you came to the church today, even if you don't like church. So the Sunday is a free day during Lent. Did you know that? Yeah. So if you do give up coffee during Lent, which I would not recommend doing, you can have coffee on Sunday. And the reason why you, you get a free day on Sunday during Lent is because we're always free because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so Sunday is this, its own celebration of freedom, of the liberation that comes because of the reality of the love and grace and forgiveness of Christ. So the rest of the weeks during Lent, you cannot eat your chocolate or whatever you're going to give up. But, but on Sundays, you get to celebrate. Because Sunday, every Sunday in the liturgical calendar is a small celebration of Easter. It's a small, so we, we, what we sang today is a, is a celebration of the love and the grace and the peace and the patience and kindness that is available to us in the kingdom of God. But Lent in the Old Testament is connected, right? Lent is connected to the Old Testament understanding of prophets who are living in sackcloth and ashes. And there's this word that the, that the prophets usually go around talking about. In sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes is, a, is about stripping away things. This is what Lent's about. Giving things away. Things that are comfortable. Things that are maybe luxurious. You, in, when you repent in sackcloth and ashes in the Old Testament, you're taking off the, the, the fine clothes that you have and you're putting on something like burlap. And you're reminding yourself that this, this life, this world, that even our flesh, is not all there is to living it's not all there is to life. That there's more to come. That we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so when you put on sackcloshes, and actually uh, Ash Wednesday, which leads up to the Lenten season on the liturgical calendar, you'll see some people walking around with little black smudges sometimes on their foreheads. And that's a symbol of of recognizing that death, death is a part of the experience of life. That this isn't all there is to human existence. That there's more to come. There's more available to us. And that Lent season reminds us of that. When we put ashes on our foreheads, it's a, it's a symbol. But in the Old Testament, they would actually cover themselves in ashes. Part of the reason they covered themselves in ashes is because they didn't shower very much during the Lenten season. And it covered some of the smell. Now why would people do that? Because it's all connected to what we're going to talk about today. It's this idea of repentance. Now you're going to know I'm a theology professor because every good theology professor has got to go to the Greek, right? So the, the New Testament is written, uh, the oldest manuscripts we have are written in Greek and the um, Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But there's a word that Jesus and John the Baptist are using when they come to begin to proclaim the gospel that is incredibly important for us today. 
And it's this idea of repentance. And the word is, in Greek is broken up into two, two words. The first word is meta. Meta, which can be translated again or beyond in Greek. And then the second word that it's connected with repentance is noia, metanoia. And that noia word comes from the Greek word nous, which is where we get the idea of thinking or reasoning. And so you put those two words together and you get think again or go beyond your thinking or to turn over your thoughts about a subject, about an issue. Now, oftentimes, you know, for people who go to church that like to go to church or want to go to church, that word repentance is often thought of as connected to sin, right? So repent, repent, sinner. Actually, repentance doesn't really have anything to do with sin necessarily. I can repent about the way I cook a chicken. And if you had my chicken, maybe you would think that that is a sin that I need to rethink. But I can, that doesn't really have anything to do with sin. It's rethinking your thinking about a subject in such a way that you may need to go a different direction. So when Jesus and John the Baptist come up and say, repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of King Jesus is at hand. You know what that means? It's within arm's reach. You can reach out and you can get it. You can grab it. It's right there in front of you. It's hiding in plain sight if you want it. So rethink the way you're living. Rethink your worldview in light of another way of life. The kingdom way of life. Now, I'm not really a big Dr. Phil fan, but he's got this saying I really dig. How's that working for you? Right? Whatever the issue is that he's dealing with, which are amazing, wacky sometimes. He looks at the person and this kind of destructive behavior that's been going on or this family dysfunction or whatever. And, and he says to them, how's that working for you? And, you know, the fact that you're on his show should give you enough reason, like, that's not working for me very well. <laughs> so repentance is about that. How's my life working for me? Now, one of the things that we are very, very good at in Christianity, down through the ages, but especially in the last 150 years here in America, is we are very, very good at telling people what they're saved from. We're not so good at helping people realize what they're saved to. What am I saved to? What life is going to replace what it is that I'm currently living and experiencing? We are very good at explaining what people are saved from. But Jesus was very good 
incredible, in fact, at demonstrating to people what's available to them, what they're saved to. So, maybe a good example I could give you is my my daughter, who's 16 years old, is kind of trying to learn how to play golf. And she's at that kind of ridiculously bad stage where we could go to the to the driving range and she can hit 50 balls really badly in a row to the point where she's kind of she's kind of thinking she's losing hope that she's ever going to hit it straight now what we've done in christianity is we focus so much of our belief system on forgiveness of sin that's what we're saved from that we have a tendency to forget what that forgiveness allows us to begin to live into. This eternal life, this life from above. So we could forgive my daughter all of her bad shots. And we would say, great, you're forgiven. And she would say, thank you so much. But she still doesn't know how to hit it straight. And until she can hit it straight... She can't play the game and enjoy the game for all that it's worth. We've got to move from just this idea of forgiveness of sin to this idea of a life lived in light of the kingdom of God. What is that worldview? How's that going to work for us? See, We've got to think about the question, is there life before death? Not just life after death. Jesus says, for those who believe in me and apply my words, you'll never die. So the question isn't so much where are you going to go if you died tonight? The question is, in light of the fact that you're going to live forever, who are you going to be? You're an eternally unceasing being with a destiny in God's great universe. Who are you going to be for the rest of eternity? So this is all one big lead-in. I'm going to now start kind of what I want to say. Can you imagine being in one of my classes? They call me no break black. Because we have four hour classes and sometimes I just forget to let them go to the bathroom. So this is all one big lead into to Exodus 20. Because here's the deal. You know what's happening in Exodus 20? These people that have been slaves for four hundred years they've forgotten what it means to be human they've forgotten who their god is it's been beaten out of them they have no imagination for who yahweh is one of the first things that god has to tell moses who he's talking to Because Moses doesn't know. He can't remember. 
God has to reintroduce himself to his people. And he saves them. He saves them. He literally takes them out of the bondage of evil, of slavery. And he sets them out apart. And it takes them, it, 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 it takes them 72 hours, 72 hours from being delivered from the bonds of slavery into the wilderness so that they be, can begin to, to understand what it is to be human again. It takes them 72 hours for them to forget who saved them and why. If anybody tells you that they will believe in God if he would just show them a miracle, don't believe it. The Israelites saw more miracles than any group of people alive up until the time of Jesus, and it never created a lasting faith. And so what Yahweh has to do to this new people after they've been resurrected, they've been saved, is he has to begin to explain to them how to live. What it means to be human again. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments, the Jewish people all throughout history, and even today, the, 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 the Jewish people call the Ten Commandments the Ten Words. And we've really, we've really messed this up. These Ten Commandments. We, we have a tendency to think of the Ten Commandments as these, these, these rules that are heavy, handed down and they're heavy-handed. And it, it's as if God wants to take away everything that's gonna make, you know, that we're going to have fun with. That he's somehow this traffic cop that's standing outside of town behind this billboard waiting for somebody to just screw up so that he can hammer them. That's not what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are a covenant. It's, it's a, a covenant is a promise. It's a pledge. What we would say today is a vow. Where do you, where do you hear vows given? You hear vow given most, most often in marriage ceremonies. And that's very much what this is. God is making a pledge of fidelity, of faithfulness, of love, to this, to this group of people. Just like he said he did to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. Despite who they were, despite all their frailty and their, and their mistakes and their lack of faithfulness, God stood behind those individuals and he's making a promise to this people now, not just individuals in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's making a promise to an entire group of people that says, if you follow me, you will have life to the full. But you've got to understand something about this, this covenant. It's conditional. Now hear me. God's love is unconditional. There's nothing you and I can do that's going to cause, us, cause God to love us any more or love us any less. His love for us is unconditional. But our experience, the quality of the relationship we have with God is absolutely conditional. It's an if-then relationship. If you follow in my ways, if you 
do what it is that I've commanded you to do. Then you will have life to the full. It's conditional. His love for us is unconditional, but our experience of relationship with God is conditioned. It's conditioned upon, here's the big word, get ready. It's conditioned upon our knowledge of God. And you can't obey God until you know God. They go together. So, let me give you a little example of this important difference between knowledge, faith, and belief. And we confuse these things sometimes. We confuse these things big time. So I've never sat on this stool. It looks a little flimsy to me, actually. Maybe it's just because I've gained a few pounds, but I've never sat on this stool. Now, I can profess belief that this stool will hold me up. I have a friend who professes belief that air travel is the safest way to, to travel, to fly. You, you know, it's, it's the safest way. And he won't get on a plane. He doesn't actually believe in the safety of air travel. He professes belief in air travel. If you're taking notes, write down this little nugget. We always act up to the level of our true beliefs. We always act up to the level of our true beliefs. If he won't get in a, on a plane, he doesn't actually believe in the safety of the plane. He professes belief in the safety of a plane. So, do I believe this stool will hold me up? I think, I think it will. So, I'm going to profess belief, and now I'm going to sit. Belief is gone. It's gone. I now no longer believe in the stool. I know that the stool is worthy of my trust. Now, I don't know everything there is to know about this stool. But I do have knowledge. Belief just disappears the minute, the second, the moment I know that my belief has been sustained. Now, the next time I come to the stool, right, or one like it, I'm not acting on belief now. What am I acting on? Knowledge. My previous knowledge. Now, my previous knowledge projected into the future is what the Bible calls faith. It's impossible to have faith without knowledge. You take the knowledge, and this is what God wants us to do. This is why he says, the faith of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those facts, the way God worked in those lives of those people, despite who they were, the way he was faithful, the way he was good, the power that he displayed, his faithfulness. You can count on the way in which God worked with them to work in your life into the unknowns of the future. And this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy, where he says, I know whom I have believed in. I know whom I have believed in. And I am persuaded, why? By, just like I was persuaded, by the facts. 
I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day, the day in the future. So what's incredibly important to know about the difference between belief and knowledge and faith is that you can't trust yourself to obey the commands of God unless you know that God is good. You can't just believe that. That was never his plan. You're supposed to, you and I are supposed to actually act on what we say we believe so that we develop a knowledge. And that knowledge then is experienced as a reality and we realize it works for us. That it's good. That my life is better. That God is good and will hold no good thing from me. It's not that God is angry and mad and trying to keep joy from us in these Ten Commandments. It's, no, God is actually trying to give us a way to life, to flourishing, to hope, to gladness, to joy, to life in all of its fullness. So here's the thing. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I know him. I don't know everything there is to know about him. But I know him. And he knows me. And we walk this life together. And as I come to know him more, the reality of those truths about killing and stealing and coveting and and lying, they don't grab my heart and tempt me into a way that should go that I should go that is going to lead me to destruction. And so one of the things we've got to 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 to, to begin to imagine in our minds is that God is good. And his word, his truth, his way is good. And the life he offers us is good. And I got to tell you, if there's one thing we've screwed up in the last 200 years, is we've allowed our religions to try to convince us that God just isn't so good. He is. He is. He's the best. One of the ways I think we can understand that is to, is to look at these, these truths these ways, this life that God has given us in the, in the Exodus 20 account as a father loving a newborn baby. When I was, when my wife and I had our first daughter, Taylor, and after the trauma of the birth was kind of over, and it's scary. I mean, stuff happens. Yeah. If I was if I wasn't there, I wouldn't have believed it. But I know I know what happened. I believe believe me, I know what happened. 
We did it twice. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. We had two of them. She did it twice. I was there twice. But <laughs> I was really thinking about whether I needed to be there for the second one. But I was. I was there. Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> yeah. But after all the trauma was over and we brought her home to our, this little rented place that we had, and I sat in my favorite chair with this little bundle of life. And it may sound funny, but I introduced myself to her. I said, Taylor, I'm your daddy. And it's going to be the great joy of my life to love you for your whole life. And I can't wait to explain all the wonderful things and experience them with you. I I can't wait to learn how to ride a bike with you. And I I can't wait to catch a fish with you, which we did once. That was it. She was done. (laughs) And to learn to sing songs and see sunsets and ice cream. We had a lot of ice cream. She liked that better than fish. And I was looking forward to the hard things too. The scraped knees. The burnt fingers. The broken hearts. But I told her, I promised her in all of it, the bitter and the sweet, that I would be there for her. And that I would give her everything I had that I would teach her everything I knew about what was good and what was right and what was wrong and what was beautiful and what was lovely. I was giving her my word, my knowledge about the truth and the goodness and the beauty of life. Here's the thing, people. That's what God's doing in Exodus 20. This new people that has come out of slavery, they're born again. They're born anew. They're they're weak and they're lost and they're afraid. And dad is coming along and he's holding them in his arms. He's saved them and he's telling them, this is what it means to live with me. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to tell you how to live. See, if we can see the ways of God, the ways of God, the truth and the life of God, as if we're being held in the arms of this loving parent who would give everything for us, who would hold no good thing, who has arms that are mighty and powerful and loving Arms laid out, having felt the sting of sin, yet arms willing to embrace us and bring us back into his care and his embrace. Those arms are the arms that gave us these truths. So I don't know, in this second Sunday of Eastertide, what you might need to rethink, to repent to metanoia in light of the fact that God has given us a way of living. What do you believe about God but you don't know about God and so therefore you don't have the ability to put your trust, your faith in God? Where is it that you just can't 
quite believe that he's good? What are you holding back? What about these, these ways, these laws? What, what about them can you just not quite put your faith in? Where you think, I've, I've just got to find a way to get what I want because I've got to force the issue. I've got to, I've got to manipulate. I've got to take control because I just can't believe that I can trust God for that part of my life. Where is it for you and for me where we just can't give our heart all of it, everything, heart, mind, body, soul, and strength? Where is it that you're holding on to something that you're just not sure God can be trusted with? See, that's what repentance and Eastertide is all about. In light of the fact that Jesus is alive, what do you need to give him to transform in your life? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for who they are, the way you've brought them, the things that you've taken them from to get them to this point right now. Father, I know I'm not what I was. I'm so thankful for that. And I also know that I'm not who I'm going to be. And I thank you for that. But I also thank you, Father, that I am who I am right now. And that I have a chance to rethink, to repent, to metanoia these things in my life that I know I hold on to. That I, I'm just not sure I can trust you with. That I say I believe, but I'm not sure I know them. And therefore, I have difficulty living in faith that you're trustworthy. Help us. Help us with our unbelief so that we can live the life that you intended for us to live. I say these things as a blessing to my brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.